0: I want to start today by letting everyone know that sometime in July, this podcast is going to go from every Monday to every other Monday. And that's pretty much for one single reason, which is that in addition to doing this show and working in August, I will be adding a PhD program to my life's schedule. So for the next five years or so, I expect to be quite swamped. But the thing about this podcast that I love is how in depth Each episode goes. They're often quite long. This is no exception this week. Um, And they often get better with multiple listens because of that depth. And I don't want to sacrifice that depth. I would rather sacrifice speed, rapidity. So that's what I'll be doing. Um, The two extra Patreon-only episodes per month will continue at the same rate, at least for the time being. So if you really want four episodes per month, there is a way to get that. Join the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Now, to this week's episode. This will be, I believe, unlike any podcast episode you have ever heard. Number one, that's because the work that Chris and Seth are doing was, at the time, to me, unlike anything I had ever encountered before. And number two, in real time, I subjected myself to one of their exercises. But more on that later. A few terms that I need to define before we get going... Compassion practice. This is a daily practice developed by author Frank Rogers, kind of like a specific kind of meditation that aims to increase your own compassion. Internal family systems model. This is a model within psychology that posits that in the same individual human mind, multiple discrete sub personalities exist each with its own viewpoint and qualities. If we want to understand a single person fully, we should try and understand each of these subpersonalities. I want to define the word normative. Anything that is a norm uh, that in some way dictates how something should be. So your neighbor might have some weird thing he does with flags outside his house on his birthday, but that's not normative. You don't have to do that. But on Memorial Day, a lot of people put out American flags and that would be considered normative in some areas of the country. If you fail to put out a flag on Memorial Day, you are negatively evaluated for that failure by your peers. That's a normative thing. Chad and Seth, our guests today, will later mention two acronyms when they're talking about their work, PULSE and FLAG. What these stand for will be written out in the show notes. In case you want to read along, they're also going to talk about it in real time as we go through. So, I will not be answering a patron question this week, simply because this episode is too damn long. Okay, enough preamble, Onto to the episode. To start off here with this different kind of conversation that I'm used to having on this show... Will you guys just tell us a little bit about each of yourselves? Name, where you're from, what you've been working on, and what you're up to now.
1: Uh, I guess my, my full title, to say, sound, say to sound very professional, uh, is Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. I am a United Methodist pastor. I'm also a assistant professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego. My teaching and research kind of centers on the areas of um, like religion and race,
2: um, religion and the environment. And my name is uh, I'm Dr. Seth Shane, and uh, I'm a doctor of practical theology, searching for an institutional home at the moment. My areas of uh, specialty are spiritual formation, spirituality, and uh, race. Okay, so you
0: guys have this project, and when our friend Tom Phillips told me about it, uh, my eyes started bugging out because how cool I thought it was that these two things would be combined that I never thought would be combined. And those are contemplative practice and racial reconciliation. Maybe just like a little bit
1: on how you ended up thinking
0: to combine those two things. Oh, man. So yeah.
1: <laughs> so the name we have right now, uh, I think that we've kind of settled on um, is Embodied Racial Awareness for personal and social transformation, which mm-hmm. is a super long title because we're academics and we don't know how to shorten things. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I think it, it starts with, um, with uh, Frank Rogers, who's a professor at Claremont School of Theology in a class that Seth got me to take during our master's degrees. I needed like an extra elective and, um, Seth was trying to figure out what he wanted to essentially do with his life <laughs> at this time. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, so he's like, oh, let's take this class called spiritual. Was it spiritual, spiritual formation for, for the, the contemplative, contemplative way. way? And, um, that's where I learned about contemplation. So we're in this class. I learned about the compassion practice and other kinds of contemplation practices. And I really have a couple of, of transformative moments in learning about the compassion practice where I was able to touch and kind of reconnect to an inner sense of self, which gets, lost sometimes in graduate school you know because it's just graduate school is very intellectual and and it's not embodied that was meaningful for me super powerful impact fast forward a few years typically as is unfortunate typical a lot of people in graduate school I was going through a marriage crisis Um, my wife and I having serious marriage problems and we were separated so I got super depressed but after I came out of that depression with a lot of help from Seth and um, therapy and other things I, I started reading these books about relationships and I turned right back to the contemplative practices that I had learned in that class it was the last time I felt like I was able to understand what's going on with me internally so I turned right back to the compassion practice to internal family systems theory texts I went to a therapist that practiced like methodologies that were consistent with what I had learned in, in, in Frank's class and so I learned these kind of skills about interior listening and not being defensive and I saw other kind of stuff that were totally just about Relationships, Just broadly understood. You know, wife and I reconciled. Everything is fantastic and great right now. And it was a little while after we got back together. I went to a trip with um, a bunch of other uh, black academics. And we were in a conversation with a gentleman um, at an institute. And I'm not going to say this person their name. But we're in Chicago. And he worked for a nonprofit. And we were supposed to be in this meeting trying to learn how to get money um like how to how to write grants and get things like that from this particular organization and there's a white dude and he's married to an asian woman and he just thought because he was married to an asian woman he could just kind of that he was woke and he could like say things that end up being really racist and it was really making a lot of other people i could see people getting very reactive and being very angry yeah um and what i noticed within me was that i was not being very i wasn't reacting at all i was like oh that guy's racist You know, um, or saying racist things. Don't say he's racist. Yeah. He was saying racist things, right? And so I noticed that and I'm not and and I didn't I wasn't defensive. I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll I'm upset with what he's saying, but that's not I, I don't need to tend to that emotional reactivity right now. What's most important right now is to figure out how to write grants to get the dude's money, get that money. Exactly. Yeah. That was my, <laughs> and so, but I noticed I was the only person that was really react- acting yeah, like that. Yeah. Interesting. And so then when I got back, um, I was telling Seth this story. I was like, yeah, I had the craziest experience, man. Like I was doing this thing and I realized I was actually doing the compassion practice or parts of the practice in this racial microaggression kind of stuff. And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, Oh, okay. And then we're like, I think we were putting together his grill or something like he yeah, had gotten a grill for a present And so I just went back to my apartment and I was like, "Ah, and then he called me and he was like, all right, we need need to talk more about this. I think, I I think, I think you stumbled onto something. And then we just started working it out. And that was essentially the seeds of it. It was through my experience with that. Um, Seth was already studying spiritual formation and contemplation already. And so we were able to kind of start combining some of my understandings of race and my experience with that, with what he understood that practice to be. A
0: couple of terms I'd like you to define before we go on. You keep saying embodied mm-hmm. and you keep saying compassion practice. So what do you mean <laughs> by those? terms, just in case people don't know what those are. Yeah,
2: I'm going to let the doctor of spiritual formation (laughs) (laughs) find that. So the compassion practice is it was developed at the Center for Engaged Compassion, which is at Claremont School of Theology. Um, Frank Rogers, Andy Dreitzer, and then uh, Mark Iaconelli, who's kind of the silent partner. Um, And they drew on neuroscience, physiology, research, um, Ignatian uh, spirituality, and then internal family systems therapy to develop this practice. Um, And so it's basically a practice that uh, allows us to cultivate compassion for ourselves and then compassion for others, and then use that to engage the world in some way and and, and engage compassionate action is what they call it.
0: So the compassion is for yourself, but also for other people. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All-encompassing compassion.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And that there's a specific way to do it. The first thing is attend to yourself uh, Mm -hmm. because the way we perceive the world is filtered through our emotions and reactivities. And that can really cloud our judgment, cloud our perceptions. And so the first thing we need to do when we are angry or have an emotion or something like that is take an inward turn. Uh, We call it the U-turn to look at what's going on within ourselves Now that's first. catchy. Yeah. <laughs> you guys could,
0: if you yeah. can find something as good as the U-turn yeah. for your overall title, then you're really good. onto something, yeah. The bar's been set Yeah. with the U-turn. Yeah,
2: yeah. they said high bar Yeah, yeah, yeah. they do. That's they do. True. That's the main practice that really uh, transformed Chris's life uh, with his wife and the separation there. I think it's, it's those practices that really enabled him to work through that. Um, and for me, my introduction to that practice was in the same class. And so at the time Mm. I was dating my now wife, uh, long distance. And Ella, as a good graduate student, you learn how to deconstruct arguments. Um, and I didn't know how to turn that off. So she would call and we'd talk about her day and I'd start deconstructing her day and problematizing everything that happened and that sort of stuff does not build intimacy. Was driving you us don't apart. Say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so then this class began with the meditation, and so after the second class, I was I sort of felt like the air was a little lighter. And, you know, I was feeling a little better, and I said, you know, Emily, I feel like there's something to this meditation. Like I'm starting to feel a little different. And she said, yeah, I know what you mean. I feel like I have you back again. And that mm. was yeah, that was that was my that was it was like a, a Damascus Road conversion for me basically wow. that. um, whatever this is, I need to do this because something this powerful needs my attention. And so so I left school uh, and got married and then came back to pursue spiritual formation. So
0: uh, some of the listeners know this, but you guys don't know this. So I'll, I'll repeat it briefly here for this conversation. I was raised evangelical. I had a very sort of apologetics type faith. I remember around 20 saying to someone, well... If all all things fail, I at least know that the historical attestation of Christ's resurrection is really strong. You know, whatever. That would be what I would say. And then about five years ago, I started doing contemplative practice, mostly just centering prayer and a little bit of gospel contemplation, Ignatian stuff. And and, uh, my faith has changed completely. That's my Damascus Road thing. And that has actually been the catalyst that's allowed me to be honest about my theological intuitions, to consider different approaches and all of that. And so that's that uh, to motivate why I was so interested in this combination, because it's that. And then in the last year or two, I've, I've read divided by faith by Emerson and Smith and um, interviewed Jamar Tisby of the witness and, and gotten really interested in sort of racial dynamics in America. And so, there, okay. that's that's yeah. the, the the twofer, uh, and then the other term is I- embodied. I think what you mean by that is like um, not just in your abstract brain, but like we are bodies, and our bodies really matter, and yeah. and so paying attention to what's going on with our body. In fact, there is no brain; we don't have a mind that's completely un unconnected to our body. Right. Is there anything else you want to say about embodied practice versus? theoretical practice.
2: Yeah. So one of the things we're seeking to deconstruct with that is the legacy of enlightenment thinking that draws that distinction between body and mind that um, we're human beings. And so as long as you're working through a human body, you're using the mechanisms of the human body to make sense of the world. And so those mechanisms influence how we perceive and think and feel and need to be a part of how we understand study, how we understand um, academia and, and ideas and that sort of thing. It's funny too,
1: because I would like in, in, neuroscience tells us that there is no, this distinction we make between reason and emotion, like doesn't really exist. And yet the persuasive nature of that argument is so powerful people can't let it go, <laughs> and so we want to push back on that and fundamentally a part of the compassion practice is this recognition that
2: in our uh, that our emotions like you know th- there's a kernels of wisdom there we we need emotions to make sense and meaning and meaning making is a fundamental part of being human so the way we understand our emotions and the different parts of ourselves is that at their core they yearn for wholeness they yearn for something positive they're trying to do something to help us but that doesn't always play out. The The external manifestation of that is not always a positive thing, right? Um, so at the core, then, is a wisdom that's yearning to be heard. And so part of the U-turn, then, is to, to go through the steps of uncovering that wisdom what is this part trying to tell me if for example you're feeling anger or fear or something like that like at the core of that anger or fear is going to be some positive intent right we're, we, we have fear because we feel threatened in some way and we're trying to stay safe so like there's a need for safety right that's a that's a good thing that's a positive intent to be safe but when it plays out in ways that are reactive and you could uh, react violently out of your own fear that that's not a healthy reaction but if you take the time to uncover the wisdom within that fear, then you have the you're empowered to respond in a different way, other than violence. And so a big part of that is the pause. So there's this pause yeah, between pause, yeah. when I have an emotion and how I react to that emotion. Is is cultivating that space and that pause where I'm not enmeshed and embroiled in that emotion. There's 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 a separation between who I know myself to be as Seth and who this fear emotion is right. It's not me.
0: So the wisdom in the emotion, in this case, the wisdom in the fear, it's not that, uh, there is some part of me that's very wise and therefore afraid, but rather it's, there is something to be learned. If I look more closely at the fear,
2: Yeah, that's the
0: wisdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my silly example I always use is like, I've gotten two milkshakes this week what's actually going on. Oh, it's a great example. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's how I know or like I got a milkshake and then today I've wanted to get a cheeseburger yeah, twice. Right. Like what's something's going on that yeah. I'm not paying attention to here.
2: Cuz that's really common, right? We we use food as to self-medicate. Oh, well, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's really common and so some right. part of us is in need of something, some tending and yeah. so is yearning for milkshakes and cheeseburgers and stuff. Yeah,
0: but. or like afternoon beer. Yeah, right. one for me. Like it's only five, and I have thought of two excuses to go to the brewery. <laughs> so what am I running from here? You know, yeah. Not that you know the brewery at five is fine sometimes, but like, yeah, it's so it's a little red beer? <laughs> yeah,
3: <exactly>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what exactly are we talking about in terms of? Can you describe the practices that you guys use in this? in this program in our
2: program. Yeah. yeah. So what are, what are
0: people actually doing?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, first of all, that's a great question. Um, I think so many conversations don't get to the specifics of what happens. I'm and starting how you, there. How Seth. do you do this? I am and so, starting there. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so our first practice we call uh, the whiteboard practice. And that's a practice that uh, Chris and I developed. Uh, the, the basic gist of the practice is that we're naming our emotions around race. And so we set that up by sharing our own stories of how we came to spirituality, how we came to compassion and race, and how those have impacted our lives, to try and create a space of of sharing that feels different from a normal environment, a normal classroom environment. Can you give me some examples of the type of things that people might write on
0: their whiteboard regarding yeah. their feelings about race. So
2: then, yeah. So we ask people to, you know, we, we kind of say we've all had experiences of race where we feel, you know it got reactive and things were shut down or it got out of hand. And so what are some of the things that come up for you about race? And so people start naming fear, anger, anxiety, I think resentment. I mean, just range Positive of emotions.
0: feelings too? Like, I mean, if people yeah, are actually, proud yes. of their heritage and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. yeah. yeah.
2: And that comes up too. And so we let that go on until, until it quite quiets down and everybody feels like they have said what they need to say. Yeah. And then we stop and say, look at all of these emotions. Like all of this is present in this room. Because we're talking about race right now. And how often do you get to acknowledge these emotions as an integral part of what it means to talk about race? Like, this is not how we experience these conversations. And that all of this is the course material. All of this is wisdom that we're going to learn how to unlock to help us engage these conversations in ways that are transformative.
0: Okay, so let me see if I get this so far. So the idea with paying attention to our emotions or our kind of unlooked at reflexes, uh, the value there is that there's something going on below the surface. Um, It's not just in our brains. It's not sort of a spiritual mental thing that has no connection to our body. It's actually happening in our brains, in our bodies. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at that. And when when we take a minute... And then we look at that, we learn something about ourselves, at least ourselves in this particular moment. And now we're bringing race in and we're just saying, okay, take that whole concept, let's apply it to questions of race and identity. And so then we think, well, let's find the feelings, just like the wisdom and the anger. And then we're going to look at where those feelings are coming from. Am I getting it so far?
1: Yeah, I I think think the the, the key part of that practice, because even then we don't, the next stuff we do tends it focuses just on the cultivating compassion not about race okay um the reason we do that though because people are they they know we're going to talk about race we want to give them a taste of it but also we just we always end that session with a question of have you ever had a conversation where all these things were named when you're having a conversation about race, right? When do, have you like have you ever had that it's kind of conversation? One percent, yeah, people exactly, yes, right. right? Pretty it's right. very low. And, 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 yeah. But and, and so we say is you've never had you've had you never had a conversation with this stuff was named, name, but all this stuff was probably there, but it was present, exactly. Right. And so now we are naming the stuff that's already in this space, right? And and that right there it, it gives us some distance that we just talked about, right? It gives us that space to pause before we get enmeshed in those feelings. It, get, it creates a distance from those feelings. so We can begin to interrogate them, right? And so that's kind of the, the practices to demonstrate essentially what we're getting ready to teach them how to do.
2: I think one of the other corollaries is that we often feel that no one else feels the way we do. And so when we're naming all of these emotions, inevitably, other people start naming emotions that resonate with me, right? Mm-hmm. Or they'll start naming things that I, I experience as well. And so it creates this like, oh, I'm not alone. Like, other people for these emotions as well yeah. so yeah so at this point if i'm trying to
0: anticipate where you go next uh and i'm feeling very reductive i would say well i think they're going to want me to have compassion for people of another race but i have an idea that it's probably much more nuanced and interesting than yeah. that
2: uh, so what's the next move it's not that
0: <laughs> it's not that okay <laughs> Great.
2: The next move is to bring attention to conversational dynamics and how we interact and how we talk with people, because that's Mm. not something most of us ever think about. I know that I didn't until I started getting into this stuff, and I, I really didn't in serious depth until we started using this practice, really. And so we call it the music practice. What it is, is we play music and then we ask people to name what they noticed while they were listening to the music. Um, and then we start, uh, as I name it, we're actually dividing it into two different categories, but haven't told them what we're doing yet. We divide the stuff on the board between what people
1: felt and what they heard. Right. Okay. And so they'll be like, oh, you know, I felt like this, you know, I felt engaged. Or I felt powerful. or I felt like the person really meant this or something like that. What came up for them? And then also saying so like, oh, I heard, you know, I heard a bass. I heard, you know, the piano play this particular thing. You know, musicians actually nuance that as yeah. you don't know. Right. Yeah. And so they're listening to the music or some listen to how they felt. And so what we distinguish in this practice is people to, to be able to understand the difference between what they feel and what they hear dual listening right okay yeah. now and, i uh, see where this is gonna <laughs> head and it is really good yeah because yeah. 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 the, the, it's super it's, yeah. it, it's so important because we right. think oh okay oh someone they, they said this and, and and i felt this way so they must have you know you, you get those things in mesh when
2: in reality like no they said this and you felt this way those are two different things right uh so so what's important about those two dynamics is that uh what goes on in the music is going on in the music, right? It's it's not something that goes on within people.
0: No, and, and there's something objective about it. It is recorded. It's
2: If you right. play it back again, it right. will sound the same. You're in tune, you're out of tune. That's not something, that's not my ears. That's what's happening in the music. Yep. Although, as you get to different music forms, maybe that's... Negotiated. Well, but I just mean, like, anyway, if you yeah. play a
0: record, <laughs> yeah. and then you say, I'd like to listen to that again, you might hear it differently because you're in a different mood, but mm-hmm. it is literally right. the same piece of exactly. music. It's done. It's, yeah. it's packaged up. And so I'm sure people have had this experience on Facebook, for instance. Yeah, Someone will say something, you take it a certain way, you might have taken it a different way, they could have said the same thing.
2: And so, yeah, right. And so that's what we're drawing attention to and saying, well, so all of these emotions, because again, you get the range of emotional reactions to the same piece of music. And so we're saying, these are all reactions within you, because if it was within the music, you would all have the same emotional reaction. Um, But it's not, it's all within... You, how it's you react you. to the music.
0: And so, uh, in Facebook is another example. If you have a hundred friends that all see your post, that's a hundred different reactions yeah. to saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so there is a distinction made there. We should make between what was said, what was played on the record yeah. and then what happened in the minds of and bodies of the 100 different people who read or heard the same exact thing.
2: Yep, so you're already making that turn to conversation. Oh, I'm making the turn. Yeah, because then we say, this is what happens when we talk about race, right? That we have our emotional reactions to what someone says, and that's our emotional reaction, not theirs. Yeah, they didn't make you feel. They didn't cause that. Yeah, they didn't make you. And that's kind of hard to understand. And one of the crucial Hmm. points about this is this move is actually an empowering move. We often want to blame people. You made me feel this way. But when we do that, we're actually giving people power over us yeah. because the empowering part of this is saying, well, no, you you can say what you want to say. But my emotional reaction is that's me. I I can, can control that.
0: Okay, so that's great. I'm thinking of I'll throw out an example, a silly thing someone might say on the left and a silly thing they might say on the right as regards race. And there's two ways you could think about it. And you guys tell me if this is working. Someone posts all these SJW shitheads need to grow a pair and and work for what they earn someone could post someone's uncle might post that or on the other side someone might post seriously anybody who voted for trump that racist piece of shit. all the problems of the country are yours blood's on your hands yeah okay so someone could say either one of those things they write things like that all the time on facebook (laughs) one way we could react to that is to go oh how dare you Or we get whatever we do. But like, isn't a more mature thing to go. Sounds like that person's really like struggling with something. Yeah. Like, isn't the sad part them that they'd have to that they would think they should post that? Isn't that much worse than any? Like, isn't that sadder than like whatever they're going to make me feel?
2: Yeah. So we would we wouldn't uh, emphasize sadness. We would say that this person is responding from their own woundedness. And that would you um, call it pathetic? No, no, because because one of the I'm kidding. I know, I know, kidding. I know. I'm just I know. I'm just needling you now, <laughs> right? So because so like if we call it sad, if we call it pathetic, yeah, that's coming from our own reactivity, right? That's a reaction to what they're saying. Sure. Yeah, we, yeah, we it, see that more as like those those would be our reactions to that because I mean so that reflects okay. I I my initial reaction would probably be it's sad and pathetic if someone wrote that. Yeah. So, th- so the invitation at that point is for me to take the U-turn and say, well, why is why do I think this is sad and pathetic? What's going on with okay. me that's giving rise to this reaction to think of this as sad right. and pathetic? So the
0: U-turn works. We, we might distinguish levels of emotional health in reacting to something uh, egregious. And like there might be a really low level of just like furious anger. And then we would do the U-turn on the mm-hmm. furious anger. Then we might get a little healthier. We might go... This guy's just pathetic. That's so sad. I don't want to... Then we might reflect on why is it pathetic. Yeah. But there might be an even better level of just like, oh, I wonder like if I could help this person. Compassion. Be like, Compassion. <laughs> Compassion. Compassion. Step, right.
3: So right. Okay. <laughs> the so step. the That's fundamental the thing step. is
2: not dehumanizing anyone okay, in this process. Good. Right. And so sad and pathetic is a is a, is a way subtle dehumanization of that sure. person. It is. Yeah. Okay. Um. So regardless of how offensive the things are they're saying, we refuse to dehumanize them.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Along with that, we don't legitimate what they're saying. Right. So in acknowledging their humanity does not mean that we agree with what they're saying or approve of what they're saying.
0: Right. That's good. Okay. So you you guys went even further than I was prepared
1: yeah. to go. I should take the class. Goes deep. <laughs> it does go deep. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, to me, that the next step we talk about is fostering compassion for ourselves. And that yeah. kind of builds on the skills we've already discussed, right? Um, and so we ask people in the midst of, of learning, we follow along Frank Rogers' book, Practicing Compassion. So they're reading it chapter by chapter. And okay. at the end of each chapter, we inter- there's practices they, that they do, but we also have practices we do in the class that we're teaching them. And one of the practices that I think helps people foster compassion for themselves, because one thing I, I should say we want to emphasize isn't just reading it, it's actually feeling it. And Seth does a really good job of reminding me that because I'm more of an intellectual... I do all the embodied stuff but then I forget it's easy to me to slip into the academic thing and because that's his discipline not yeah. necessarily mine <laughs> and yeah. so he'll be like no we gotta do the practice I'm like okay yep we gotta emphasize the practice and so one of the practices is just a, a simple worksheet practice where we ask the students to think about time they uh, had their first experience with race and like what came up and they kind of work through different ways in which they embody that they they, they name a part and kind of what came up and how they felt and they talk to it and they tend to it and that's not always easy for everybody right not necessarily remembering the story but actually doing the practice and what yeah. we found is that oh, i'll let you can go, go
2: well uh you wanted specifics so i was going to say let's talk about parts the way we view the internal world is that we have different parts of ourselves right so part of me wants to go to the store needs to go to the store and get groceries but part mm. of me wants to stay home and not do anything and so we view these parts as distinct personalities in some sense i mean it's, it's, yeah. ba- it's basically built on internal family systems yeah. theory um, so we don't have, we don't take a unified personality view of our internal world.
0: Yeah. There's no one Dan desire at any given moment. There are yeah. competing right. desires, jockeying right. for which one, because part of me wants to get the milkshake, but part yeah. of me also doesn't want the stomachache that comes <laughs> yeah. after the milkshake. And if I don't have someone to split the milkshake with, which is my usual way of, uh, getting Avoiding out the of stomach. number two, yeah. Yeah. uh, <laughs> then I'm in a pickle. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: So that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's really helpful as an imaginative way to begin to tend to these parts, because w- what we do is tend to those parts as we would a friend, like a friend came up to you and was really in trouble and really needed help. How would you tend to that friend? Most of us can think of things that we would do or say or how, you know, that's pretty easy for us to conceptualize. So do that for yourself. Do that for this part. Treat this part the way you would a friend in need.
0: Hmm. I'd actually like to have us do that thing you just mentioned, Christopher, of telling our stories of our first memory or interaction with race, um, to give an example, but that will probably be a way to segue into more of the, uh, critical race theory part of our conversation. So let's hold off on that and, and, and get through anything else we should get through about this contemplative compassion practice. Uh, and let's say you have a student and they wake up in the morning and they're like, I'm going to spend 20 minutes this morning before I go to class working on the stuff that I'm learning in class. What might they be doing? Oh, A, a well, methodology that yeah, they would... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah.
2: the acronym is PULSE. And so that's the process for tending to a part of yourself. And then it's the same process for cultivating compassion for others.
0: So it's the, um, same, it's the same move.
2: Okay, yeah. So, so that's, yeah, that's... Give me the pulse. acronym. Right. So PULSE is uh, the acronym, paying attention, uh, understanding empathically, loving connection, loving with connection, sensing the sacred, and then embodying new life. Okay. So... Unjargon that for me, yeah, right. one at a time. <laughs> so paying attention. I mean,
0: that's we, we've sort of been talking about that, like looking at it, identifying what's going on. Yeah. So
2: getting grounded and then being able to pay attention. So you're not embroiled in the reactivity of the part that you're trying to work with.
0: Now, in my mind, in my experience, I should say, as someone who, with sort of semi-diagnosed ADD or ADHD, the paying attention part—that's the main hurdle. Uh, it yeah. takes me five to ten minutes yeah. at least just to slow down the monkey brain. yep. And so that that's the hard part. It's like it. that takes me a while. Sometimes then I am done because that took all the energy I had that morning just to like calm my brain yep. down. But so would people expect for it to take a few minutes to get to the P?
2: Well, so there's different ways to do it. Okay. I guess first of all, you both of us have actual diagnosed ADD. So <laughs> that's not a bar to doing these practices no. at all. And there's a number of ways to do it, and Chris and I actually do it differently. I prefer, for my when I'm doing it myself, a more traditional contemplative approach where I'm sitting in silence. Chris does it more actively, uh, so he'll listen to music or he'll he'll journal and write or walk around and things like that. I'll I'll walk in like
1: St. Francis of Assisi, like like I would have read something in the morning or something, and I'd have like a sermon, you know, kind of preaching to the birds and yeah. stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's mm. very much. For me, more embodied. But I have, so I have diagnosed ADHD and that H is for real. Like (laughs) that that hyperness is like totally something that this actually really helps me with. To your point, it took me a while um, to, to learn how to get grounded. What, for me, it was something that took me a little bit longer that i f- I feel like that's a societal thing. I don't know that this would have been an issue two hundred years ago. I think we live in a very frenetic society
0: oh yeah, I mean there's the just the number of informational inputs in a human day has must have gone up a
2: hundredfold in the last two hundred years, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. understanding empathically, we use the flag acronym that we okay. just described to create that empathic nested, connection. you
0: have acronyms nested, nested like Russians, yeah.
2: like Russian <laughs> dolls yeah. <laughs>
0: think <laughs> like Russian dolls uh, And okay. the very Tiniest little doll Is U-turn <laughs> Yeah The simplest Okay And most important mm, one most yeah. Important yeah And the and best And be, flag
2: would actually Be the second most important Okay, that, that's a, okay. If, if you're going to Try and take like The nuggets from this Because yeah. it's a lot to remember U-turn and flag
0: Okay So what's oh. flag again?
2: So it's When you're trying to create An empathic connection With yourself yeah. Or with another person It's a series of questions You can ask So flag as uh, fears. So what are the fears of this part that are mm. causing this part to act this way? What are the longings? You know, what what does this part long for in some, like, to give birth to something new in the world or something like that? Yeah. Um, aching wounds. How has this part been hurt by something? And, and why, you know, how is that causing this sort of reaction? And then gifts stifled. Like, what, what is this part yearning for to to bring into the world, to give new life to something? Mm. And so, asking that your are part of these various questions um, creates that grounded wisdom that you can then begin to use to move in the world in new ways.
0: I kind of want to. Can I be a guinea pig here?
2: Can I just do this? <laughs> uh, maybe. Can yeah, we do it I'm live? Like, I'm,
1: like, I'm like I don't know that we can do it live because it because it's. Something... I haven't
2: thought about doing it this way. Ever, yeah, so. I've never <laughs> thought about doing it this way
1: because we've always and I feel like obviously we we have to a certain degree created the space, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I
2: don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe we could try it. let see what I happens. guess we could try because we'd always cut it, right? You always cut it. So I'm game. And so
0: we tried it. This next section, uh, the editing is a little more loose, but not entirely loose. I don't make you sit through 15 seconds of silence as I did when we were actually doing the thing. But let's just consider this next bit as a kind of experiment in podcasting. I went through the compassion practice with Seth and Christopher as my guides. Now I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back by including this. I just was genuinely interested in trying it. And I thought, Hey, if it goes, okay, it might make for a more interesting episode than usual. It did turn out. Okay. Nothing too embarrassing. So we're playing it along with Seth and Christopher's response to it. And some of what they say is complimentary of me in the moment. And yes, I do feel awkward leaving that stuff in there. I think that they're being kind, partly because it's a part of this whole process. I'm not leaving it in to brag, but rather to show the process. Anyway, I'm embarrassed, but I think it's worth including here is that podcasting experiment. What do I need to do to get myself in the mind space for this?
2: First of all, it's grounding, was the first step that I didn't say, is getting into a place where you feel safe to turn inward and to look inward. And so, you know, take a few, get into a comfortable posture, take a few deep breaths. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. What, what is it that I'm
0: looking for exactly?
2: Some reactivity within you um, that you would like to spend some time tending to.
1: Think about activities. They, they came up in my
2: board yeah so like when when you have we can, keep, we can make it a racial one too so right okay. so yeah, have let's, let's keep, it in, yeah, when, let's keep so it in family you've had conversations about race in the past right many yeah and some of them have gotten out of hand some of them have probably gone well yeah so what emotion for you seems most present
0: well here's here's one that comes to mind and I don't have to name any names I was involved in a group conversation where I was keeping my cool pretty well Until uh, a bunch of people in the group started talking about the NFL players kneeling Mm -hmm. for the anthem. And that's when I got emotionally engaged and was unable (laughs) to keep my cool any longer. Is this a good candidate? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So for whatever reason, I thought it was interesting because um, we had been kind of arguing politics, and it's a it's a group of people I don't like to argue politics with, and I really try yeah. not to. But I couldn't tell myself this time. And I still was, like, keeping it good until they started talking about the Kaepernick and the Kneelers. And that is when I noticed myself go from a four to an eight and get very impassioned <clears throat> and then start basically acting toward them in a way I
2: didn't want to act. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent example of reactivity. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it feels like an excellent example of reactivity. (laughs) Okay. Because that's so, so an emotion took over your consciousness, right? So you became that emotion. I became that emotion while, yeah, while sitting at that table. Yeah. And there was no difference between Dan and the emotion you were feeling. Yeah. For at least five minutes or so. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, if you like would think about that emotion, what does it look like?
0: I felt like a pit bull defending my kid, Mm. you know, my Mm -hmm. little, the boy who owns me, the human boy. Uh, Should we go with pit bull?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, a pit bull, but but a pit bull protecting the the boy.
0: The reason it was a pit bull is because at that moment, the conversation went away from policy, from sort of like news information sources mm-hmm. and what we, can we trust and it went toward it felt like the dignity of people was being was mm-hmm. being dismissed and that felt like a change and then i jumped in and one was unable to keep myself from defending their dignity uh and i i was surprised by
1: how emotional i got yeah yeah was the pitbull protecting you were you the boy
0: it didn't feel like that it felt like um there's a lot of things i can stand to hear from people who i disagree with but when you're gonna start talking about the fact that people who have had experiences so different from you they don't respect the flag or they don't res- they don't care about their country i it, it it just brought up all what it brought up was the the way that i have emotionally interacted with learning more about health and wealth, um, discrepancy on racial lines in America. Mm-hmm. And it, I wanted to, it, it felt like the way when moms go, you don't know my fucking kid. Don't talk mm-hmm. about my kid like that. Yeah. That's what it felt yeah.
2: like. Yeah. So it's deep protective, protective reaction. Yes. Okay. Um, so is it okay if we kind of talk to this pit bull?
0: Let's, let's talk to the pit bull.
2: Okay. Yeah. What, what, like does, does this pit bull carry any fears with it? Great question. And and it may not. It may not resonate. And that's fine.
0: Well, there's a fear that people in my life that I love, I will not be able to love them because they will not be able to see other people with the same dignity that I see them. And that that will in in some way separate us in in a more definite way than, say, our opinion about immigration policy would
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that's a fear um i'm wondering if there's a more personal fear than that because that that's like a secondary thing there might be a fear that i don't live up to that i don't actually live as if i am defending like that pitbull mm-hmm. maybe that i have a belief well it's more than a belief because it's it is an emo. It came up emotionally, so I, I do have some sort of affective thing going on. But I wonder if there's a fear that I'm actually not doing enough about that. Hmm. Maybe.
2: So is there is there a, a yearning then within this pit bull? Well, I don't know what. Do you sense any yearnings within this? Like any gifts that are stifled?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think there is a yearning. To know more what it is like, for instance, to live in or have grown up in or be in, in some meaningful way, like the black American community Mm -hmm. there, I, I feel, um, it's weird. I have all this affect and this feeling, but I don't actually have the experience in my own story. And maybe there's a disconnect there, which maybe makes the pit bull sort of like more ferocious than it needs to be to make up for the fact that I haven't actually experienced it myself. Maybe there's something like that. Ask me again. Let's see if there's another, something else there.
2: <laughs> is there, um, are, are there any aching wounds?
0: There's one that I can say what it is, but I can't go near it much. My younger brother is adopted and half black Okay. and we've never talked about race, he and I.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, and that's mostly just because we, we haven't been very close for the last 10, 12 years since I basically went to college. Um, and I so I don't want to go there. Yeah, that's I, fine. I want to do that with him in person yeah. someday when he wants to, but um, that's there's some wound there. And I did not put that together in the moment, but in some sense when these people are talking about the, those people, whatever, they didn't say that on, I'm, I'm not putting those words in my mouth. They are talking about my brother. Mm-hmm. And and then that's something that I, you know, he grew up in our family, which was all white. We live in a very white town. And so the, I haven't even internalized. I don't know how he has internalized his own racial identity. Mm-hmm. I know, I know he has some, he has some tattoos to that effect. We've talked about it a little bit. I've heard snippets from my parents over the years, but so I, uh, i don't know how he's internalized it, and i haven't i don't have any sort of consistent internalization of his race and like my part in that
2: okay um so that sounds like like maybe a longing that would It's be maybe next more one. of a longing than a wound
0: yeah. because I would like to be close
2: with my brother in that yeah. respect yeah 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 so what i'm what i'm hearing is that there's a, a longing for connection with your brother in, in this part. Mm-hmm. And that kind of yeah. gives rise to the strong reaction to protect mm-hmm. your family in some way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the initial moment had much to do with my brother, certainly not consciously. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's gotta be there. It's gotta be down there. A couple layers it has to be, I mean, I grew
2: up with him. So, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so is there anything else that this part of you is trying to tell you?
0: How do I know what it's trying to tell me?
2: Well, that's kind of what we've been getting at. So I think okay. we may have gotten at some okay. of that. And so to kind of wrap this up then, um, we we have um, a sentence here that I'll have you fill in the blanks. Okay. So um, we're going to invite the personified part, this pit bull, uh-huh. to summarize what it has shared with you. Okay. So okay. whenever... I, you know, the pit bull, um, get activated, the pit bull needs you to hear and understand what?
1: Hmm.
0: That you have unfinished business with your brother, that there is probably wounding on more sides of the issue than you think or tend to immediately think Mm -hmm. that you're not Totally. Living an integrated way, not necessarily racially integrated, like quotas, but like personally integrated way around race. There's a lot of new ideas that you find true and moving, uh, but you are not there yet in terms of actually living out of those newer or newly informed
2: convictions. Okay. So then um, the last part of this is you um the pitbull long what is it long for like it longs for
0: the pitbull wants me to be in a community of people who see injustice more clearly mm-hmm. and are willing to orient their lives accordingly to that injustice that is clearly seen. That's probably the main thing.
2: Thank you. I see. And is as- as the last part, is there an any invitation from the pit bull for one concrete way you can extend this reaction into the world in some way? Besides recording it live, <laughs> that's a big one. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, that, that might be it. <laughs> one one concrete way to uh, to extend it. What does that mean?
2: So the wisdom that you've gained for this. How can that? be moved into action. What's the invitation?
0: I think to, to go full circle, it's, it's probably to, to put my money where my mouth is more. And if I did do that, then I don't think I would have had the same reaction. It sounds Mm -hmm. like, because I would, it's not that my feeling for the NFL players would decrease. It would probably increase, Mm -hmm. but it would be more integrated into my actual habits of life. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas to argue with them about immigration policy and stuff, I did a politics pod a politics podcast for a while. I talked about that stuff. It's you know, and in fact, uh, I went to Nevada. I canvassed for Hillary to mm. help beat mm-hmm. Trump. It, it, that was a very that's a very integrated part of my life. It yeah. took time out of my life to do that. Started a show. I I resisted quote unquote in in a, a way that made sense for me, mm-hmm. and so maybe there's not as much unresolved guilt and whatever there. Whereas with this, the racial issue, it's like, well, I haven't actually done shit. I mean, I haven't, you know, I mean, I do podcast episodes about it, but I've never gone to a black church. I've never, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I'm not like doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's all the sweet moral outrage (laughs) with none of the real life lived experience to actually, Make a difference and integrate that into my life. Yeah, so that's probably the takeaway.
2: Well, thank you for. Is that this. it? Yeah, that's yeah, that's <sighs> that's cool. <I> that's <laughs> cool never, stuff. I've, yeah, thank you for doing this. That was very brave of you to do that.
0: Yeah, um, well, I'm an exhibitionist <laughs> it's at heart. So let's yeah, let's take a little break. I've got a question for you. Do you remember a Christian punk band from Santa Cruz, California called Craig's Brother? It's okay if you don't, but as for me and my friends, we loved Craig's Brother. Their guitarist, Adam Nye, ended up going to seminary in Scotland and becoming a professor. And he have, he and I have stayed loosely in touch. And he responded to something I wrote about inerrancy on Facebook recently. We got into a little chat and we realized that we should just record a real conversation about this topic. He went into college looking for a way to not believe in inerrancy and left believing it. And as you know, I'm not an inerrantist, but we had an interesting, and of course, very civil conversation about each of our motivations and intuitions around this incredibly central and usually quite divisive topic. And that conversation is the latest patron-only bonus episode patreon.com slash Dan Koch. If you want to join the Patreon, here are some clips of my conversation with Adam to wet your whistles, so to speak. So that's interesting. So you went in there looking for like something else that worked better than the Mm -hmm. kind of inerrancy that you had held up till that point. And then you ended up coming out with like a version of inerrancy.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's right. Um, Within Protestant scholarship, we should be clear that the reformers did not, they did react negatively to the medieval uh, allegorical tradition, but they did not react to that negatively by withdrawing to a naive literalism. They had a rich typological way of reading the text that um, was, was certainly not naive.
0: I, I tend to be of the view that like, yeah, a lot of shit has changed in the last 175 years. We know things that they didn't know. They didn't have archeology. span they didn't know the size of the universe. Uh, they didn't know a, a, so many things that, that don't necessarily bear on questions of salvation, especially
3: like I, I've heard changing attitudes. But in terms of things we know about the ancient world better than the ancient world knows about, I would question the inerrancy of modern research methods on gaining us that kind of new knowledge. I, I'm not sure we really have that better of a leg up on the ancient world than the ancient world did.
0: Um, assuming an evolutionary
3: account of human origins, would, would you attribute sin to non-human animals?
0: I think that's a really hard and interesting question. I'm not, I'm not, uh, opposed to some notion of it. I think that sin, the capacity for sin probably develops as the capacity for will and choice and determination and and future outlook ability. You know, as all that develops, you're more and more able to sin. A little kid can sin like a kid can lie but a kid a, can't a, a human kid yes yeah a human kid can lie but a human kid can't like engineer the holocaust like they can't you know what i mean like they're just they can't sin <laughs> sure. that high they can't uh they can't plan out the uh, on the mer- uh a perfect crime you know what i mean like so they're not as
3: effective in the results of their sin but they yeah, have like they can they still can have sin. evil intent yeah. Yes,
0: and i feel like our cat like, sometimes knows that she's doing the wrong thing like i don't know maybe that's it. I don't, you know,
3: you're right. He invokes a hierarchy, uh, uh, an anthropological hierarchy backed up by like divine will the to creation. say that like, yeah, yeah, you're right. He invokes that in order to say that this is how this ought to play out in a cultural sphere. But the church has been pretty comfortable translating that, like the way that works out culturally. Yeah. For a pretty long time. No, um, I, I agree.
0: And and the church is going to increasingly become comfortable uh, working out the homosexuality thing and and calling that cultural, which I knew that's where that though, was going next. Even though I don't want to go there, I don't think that that's okay. the right argument. By the way, I, and yeah. I I did an episode yeah. on it. I think of I think a far better argument is to actually call out the misogyny of the time and to include women, slavery, and homosexuality as stemming from the same basic societal assumptions. I know you're not going to be convinced by that argument, I can tell, but okay. th- that, that's a better <laughs> argument than Matthew Vines' argument of, like, he's talking about pederasty, not sex. Like, no. He really thought that, like, women were lower than men, and so did everybody else.
3: But where, where, where I've come more, I guess, maybe in the last, like, six, seven years is just to say that, like, I, I, fi- I find myself needing to guard more and more the idea that I'm critiquing a portion of Scripture by the fullness of Revelation revealed in Christ,
0: so to hear the whole thing, if you like what you heard there and all the other bonus episodes and to engage regularly with myself and the whole Facebook You Have Permission crew, join the Patreon, patreon.com slash or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. It's five bucks a month. But if you can't afford it in this season of your life, there are some scholarships available. Thanks to some very generous folks who have reached out privately to me. So if that's you, email me, youhaveremissionpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are a patron and your spouse is interested in the conversation, please have your spouse join the Facebook group and get in on the action there. On the Facebook group, it's patrons only. It's where I often field questions for guests. I field the questions that I answer at the end of episodes, other bonuses, whatever, join it. Um, Okay. Moving our brains back to today's episode. You'll recall that the last thing we did was I went through this compassion practice live on air and now we're back to a more regular interview style. Now, about 15 minutes into this next and final section, we have a fairly difficult and honest conversation about the way that race language is used in American culture today. Those of you who are familiar with my other podcast Depolarize might recognize kind of where I'm coming from in this segment. Uh, None of us really pulls any punches. We pretty much go for it and talk it out clearly and cleanly. And I think it turned out actually really well. It's partly me playing devil's advocate and partly it's legitimate concerns I have as more of a centrist about being able to reach a wider audience when we are talking about race. So that's the uh, disclaimer. Here is the rest of my conversation with Chris and Seth. I would love to hear what you guys thought about what just happened since you've done this a bunch with people and I'm giving you permission to say, to speak freely on the record about that. Uh, what, like what, what, what happened for you? Guys? I mean, obviously my
1: experience was, I said it out loud, but came up for me was at first I was like, wow, it's interesting that you're not the boy that that's the dog part. That when you identify the, the pit bull and then the boy wasn't you, I was like, well, that's fascinating. And I immediately thought, I was like, I wonder who he's protecting because you're protecting something, somebody, or whatever. And then when you said, essentially, you were talking, you're like, oh, it could be your brother. I was like, well, that's interesting. But as you kept talking, for me, I, I came to see, or to a certain degree, interpret that some of this is, it's wrapped up in your relationship with your brother, but it's also a way in which um, you feel caught to defend people who aren't fully understood and, and have complex situations. And, and and that I was like, oh, okay. And, and there's some internally family stuff that goes along with that, but it's not just him. It's a bunch of other stuff too. It's, it's totally both. Yeah. yeah. And so that for me, I thought was very moving. That's what I said. You know, that, because that's the thing. I mean, I, and I could see you working through it in your head. You're like, and, and I won't say you're surprised, but certainly I think you kind of were. You're like, oh, that's interesting. I really thought about that in that particular kind of way. And so I, I appreciate you genuinely engaging in this because it's it's not easy emotional work, right? Especially without having done all the other stuff that we teach, right? Like yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, is, yeah, how, this, this is, is labor.
0: But I <laughs> have <laughs> been in therapy for three and a half years. Okay, well. Oh. Okay. I've done a little <laughs> bit of work around it and I've done a fair bit of the... The, the you know, contemplative yeah. practice, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, more generic stuff, not so led yeah. as this, but yeah.
2: I thought it was interesting that our, our strong reactions tend to reflect something within us that's needed. Right. And so this, this need within you that's born out of the relationship, the fractured relationship with your brother and that, that can cause a strong reaction towards other people because it's mm. touching something within you yeah. where you feel called to do something or something is needed. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting, but, uh, so does that resonate with you for one? I, I, Cause I'm like projecting here. No,
0: right? it's interesting. It's like with my brother, uh, there's longing to be closer. There's a sense of failure, you mm-hmm. know? I, I mean, we're almost nine years apart. Mm, I okay. left for college when he was, you know, like 10, mm. nine, eight and a half. So, and then I was on tour for 10 years. Yeah. So I've really not been regularly in his life since he was 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. And so I can forgive myself for some of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, here's this thing about his life. That's difficult for him, uh, that he didn't choose. And that I've now become really interested in, but there's no integration of those two things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I don't think he doesn't listen to this podcast, but <laughs> if you are listening, Jonathan, use it as a reason to call me and let's chat about it. But <laughs>
2: you
0: know, like, it's not, you know, so it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm still kind of sitting here wondering how connected they are, but there's something. There's yeah, some connection. Sure. And that was interesting because I wouldn't have thought of it that way before doing this. And I that's, yeah. Yeah.
1: that's the whole point of this process is realizing the things that are underneath, right? right. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's the things that are underneath and, and, and you're not going to figure it out just okay i did this one practice and now i figured no yeah. <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> you know like everybody we set always jokes like everybody wants us to come in and fix racism in like three hours they're like oh come in do this workshop for us fix the racism in, in our place yeah, of work right. yeah and 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 don't charge too much money in yeah. doing it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know right. and i'm like that's not possible so right. it just takes time um that's why i said i was really um not, I'm proud isn't the right word but just really uh, you know I, I have a lot of um Admire, you know, your strength to be able to share like that because that—that's not easy to do. In in the ways in which you genuinely engage in that, that's yeah. that that shows. This uh, is the work,
2: yeah. This the, is the yeah. work
1: that uh, white people, every white person, needs to be doing. Yep. So
0: let's transition into talking about race. Sure. So the way I'd like to do this transition is, you guys mentioned earlier this part of your class where you have students give an early, an important first or important, whatever memory of race or first early experience with race. And I wanted to, can I have you guys do yours? Yeah, no, sure. that's, that's
1: totally fine. That's totally and, fine. And, uh,
0: you know, I think I can get out of this one cause I just bared my soul <laughs> for a while. So let's start with you, Christopher. Like, what is this, what's the story that you, that you give if you're asked this question?
1: Yeah. So the most, the, the first time I had like a really conceptual, um, awareness or i guess like a a distinction was when i was in kindergarten um i was going to a predominantly white school and we're doing like show and tell or something like that and one of the kids was talking about how he went hunting with his uh father over the weekend made it sound kind of cool specifically i don't i know he didn't say this but the way i remember it is that he went bear hunting clearly he was not hunting bears Pretty but this sure yeah. your childhood <laughs> so, companion yeah, yeah, yeah. was not bear hunting. exactly so 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 <laughs> not bear hunting but essentially he was hunting so i go home and i tell my mom i'm like mom you know i want to go hunting i was like that sounds like so much fun hunting will be really cool and my mom looks at me and kind of laughs and and she's like, okay, let me get your dad. So she calls my dad in the room and she's like, well, Tell your dad? What you just told me. And I'm like, you yeah, know, I want to go hunting. And so they laugh. And my mom says, we don't hunt. That's what white people do. You know, I wasn't, she wasn't laughing like at me, right? I could tell she was laughing at the idea of me as a black person yeah, hunting, sure. right? Even as a kid, I was like, oh, okay, white people hunt, hmm. black people don't hunt, right? So she had racialized this kind of activity. Um, and that was kind of the beginning for me. That I can remember being able to have a distinct understanding of there's certain things white people do and certain things black people do. Right? So yeah, you know, so I was like maybe five, you know, when that happened. Interesting.
0: So then what do we what do we do with that? You you what I'm not the I'm pretending to try and be you guys. So now what am <laughs> I supposed to ask you about that memory?
1: You know, we're we're trying to build these muscles of being grounded and knowing how to internal list, do internal listening, right? So we want the students to be able to distinguish between the story I just shared versus how they felt about the story I shared. Right, right, right. right. Okay. And, and so those are two different things. And so we want to make sure that they can listen to the story and actually hear what I said and remember it and be engaged and also yeah. listen to themselves and remember how they felt about what was said, right? So you've
0: told this story in class before? Yes. And so what are some of the things that have come out of that just from past classes that are interesting either for you or for the students who are doing this work?
1: I think the thing that's most interesting for me when I share this story, when we get to the point where we're kind of talking about our stories publicly, is how much younger people of color are when they discover their awareness of race. That's interesting. Um, versus typically white people tend to be in high school. Um, hmm. Yeah, White girls may be like in junior high um, because yeah. they're because because of their gender like they're already they've wrestled with difference in a way in which men don't have to right mm. i will say i should put an asterisk on this as well this is different for like immigrants right because have a very american way of thinking about race um and when you're a even a black immigrant right your conceptual experience of, of race is going to be drastically different so we're talking about like an american african-american yeah. understanding of race more or less
2: so for me my um one of my earliest memories is, um, at, at a jazz camp, uh, I was really into <laughs> jazz as a kid, missed most of the music of my generation because jazz was Clearly. superior in my mind, <laughs> um, <laughs> He knows no like pop culture music from the nineties. Yeah. Like my all-
0: white story begins in <laughs> jazz camp.
2: Yeah, oh, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Got into Green Day in the early two thousands. Uh, yeah. uh, so I mean,
0: I guess jazz is invented by African Americans.
2: Yeah. Right? So yeah, which is actually ties into the story. Ties into the story. Okay, great. So here we so, go. So um, so jazz camp, and we were staying in the dorms. And so in the dorm next to me, there was a um a group of African American guys from uh St Louis. And so, you know, we're moving in the dorms for the week, and I made friends with them and started talking with them, and I thought they were really cool and kind of hung out with them. And so when we were introducing, um, they were like, what's your name? And I was like, my name's Seth. He's like, Seth? I said, no, Seth. He said, Seth? I said, no, my name's Seth. He said, we'll call you Dub. And so my name for the week was Dub. That's what they called me. And it wasn't until recently that Chris pointed out to me, because I haven't really shared this story a lot, so I haven't reflected on it with after acquiring racial knowledge Chris pointed out that they were calling me white just it was dub is w-, sh- w. w short for white yeah
0: why didn't they just call you Seth <laughs> I don't know I think I they're, from Missouri. they're I think from Missouri it was is their accent. accent it was their accent my dad's
1: from my stepdad's from Missouri yeah. and like he couldn't okay. say
0: Seth he would so, say Seth yeah. that's what he would say Oh, so they were like, rather than having to like work at this pronunciation, we're just going to call you. They Doug. gave me a nickname. Which, no, and yeah, I, so my
2: experience of that was
0: like,
1: this is super they, cool, they like right? Yes. And like, that is 1000% true. They gave okay. him a name that okay. he was invited into a particular kind of place. Okay. Yes. Okay, so cool. that's
2: exactly what was happening. But there's a lot of humor in the name they gave me that I missed. Too. That you missed. So yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So Seth was entering in a space that was, that's populated because it's jazz music by a lot of african americans right so he's going into a a, a space as a guest to a certain degree and he's accepted because he's can perform this art that's traditionally african-american in a way that they accept and say okay no you're you're in you can be you're down in this particular space so by giving him that name they are acknowledging that and he's in that space you know and that's not saying like he's like woke or they were
2: inviting him and allowing him to participate in a particular way they're making him a part of the community right wrestling with race and community for especially for african-americans starts really young so when i was in baltimore uh, I, um, I was in AmeriCorps and uh, we were I was tutoring at an inner city school in, in Baltimore and I was tutoring second graders. They love you because that age, the kids just love you if you're a nice person and I'm a pretty nice guy and got along with them well. So one day we're in the lunch line waiting to go to lunch and one of the kids is like, Mr. Shane, are you white? And before I had a chance to answer anything, another kid butts in and says, no, 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 no. He, he ain't white. He's light skinned. And I'm um, about as pale as you can get. I was called pink recently. So, <laughs> yeah, so like I'm, I'm looking at you. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you're white. Yeah. Yeah. yeah super right. white. But they're already at an age where they understand some core things with racial dynamics because they, and accept they have me. various terms even to yeah. delineate yeah.
0: different kinds of people of European
2: heritage. Right. So they understand. They like me. They accept me. There's something about white people that's not entirely safe. Right. So I can't be white. So you can't be white. Because they. Are, I'm, I'm in with them, right? So I'm, hmm. I'm light-skinned as a way to be accepted. So
0: that leads into really kind of like one of my biggest questions, and maybe I could even call it a concern with the way that we sometimes talk about race in America. We have just spent an hour plus, and in the stuff of yours that, that uh, Christopher sent me that I read before, like all this beautiful work uh on on really loving ourselves and then loving our neighbor as mm-hmm. ourselves and like really getting into the particularity of a story and then like you're talking about you know someone says one story there's 30 people in the class there are 30 particular reactions to the same story and then we're we're trying to The work you guys are doing, I love how much attention it pays to each particular person in each of these contexts. And yet one of the things that often happens in the way that we talk about race in America today is we it's much quicker to boil everyone down to their racial group and, and to actually wash all of the particularity away. Now, that's handy. It's less mentally taxing. I know that sometimes from white groups, especially conservative thinkers, there is there's a move to try and say, well, everyone's just an individual groups don't matter at all. Let's not, you know, let's not do any sort of affirmative action or anything, because all that matters is the merits of individual people. And and I don't see color, whatever, all that stuff. I'm not saying anything (laughs) like that. But there is some kind of attention between if I primarily identify someone as a member of a group, then I am collapsing some chunk of their individuality by doing that. How do you guys think about that tension? Uh, How do you navigate that tension with your work?
1: I guess I answer that by saying we see race as a part of you. Like we talked earlier, a parts language, right? There's a lot of parts, but it's one. Yeah, yeah, race is one part. It's not not the totality of who you are. It's just one part, right? And so it's been super helpful working with actually uh, multiracial young people because they give this in a whole other way because they understand that there's a performative aspect to
2: they actually helped us. Yeah. They, they, yeah. I was
1: just saying they, they have helped us and we're still in communication <laughs> with the particular person who helped us. Cause uh, I think her way of distinguishing her own identity was just super powerful for us. And so I'm I, not only an my African-American male, but I'm also a pastor. I'm also a professor. I'm a brother. Um, I'm a husband, you know, I'm a soon to be father. And there's all these different things that are, Part of me um, that puts me in these multiple different groups, and there's nothing wrong with grouping. It's about when we, we when we we take these groups and try to make them as excuses to marginalize and oppress. Right, that's when things become powerful. To play a little devil's advocate here, <coughs> does like the Twitter mob
0: count as oppression? I guess I'm thinking of the story. I think it's at Evergreen where the the students called for like a whiteout day, and they said. Everyone who's white don't come to campus on this day. And then this professor was like, I'm going to still come to campus and do my job. And that led to this big protest, getting the... And of course, this is not happening everywhere all the time.
1: A professor that was white said he was still going to come to campus? Yeah. It wasn't that the...
0: Uh, it was not the administration that called for the whiteout day. It was like a, a student group. Yeah, yeah, And he was like, no, like, pe- we're going to still have class. Um, there, was a, there was a... And so the students wanted this professor to get fired? Oh, they got him fired. Yeah. Oh, then there's you've seen this footage. They, they're they like shouting him down. They're asking the administrator to censure him and fire him. What was the purpose of the whiteout day? I'm confused. So there's a there had been a previous um a blackout day where black student group had said, you know, we're going to not come to school one day as a way to sort of show what it's like without us. We're going to elect to do mm, that. Mm-hmm. And that had, been, that had been going for 25 years or something like that. And then this one, you're like, well, we're going to change it this year we're going to actually ask all the white people not to come. Oh, so this than, was initiated
2: by like the black student union yes. or, yeah, or, or something some like that. Or some particular, okay.
0: some group of the students, okay. you know, obviously not all of them, um, a particularly vocal group. And then when this guy did come and didn't go along with that, cause he was like, no, I mean, we, it's one thing to say, I'm not going to come and I'll get the homework and whatever, but like, I'm not going to stop doing class for everyone else yeah. to, for this point, they got him fired basically. And there is a few dynamics there. I mean, I think the administrator was probably didn't do their jobs right, it, whatever. But the point is, does that count? Is that also an unhealthy collapsing of someone into their category, as opposed to there is a lot of parts to this guy? Yeah,
1: yes, yeah. it's very. I am like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, so I no know, I know. Seth there. has yeah. uh, some stuff he wants to say. I'll, I'll just say that working at a university, the the challenge at a predominantly white school, right, Catholic school, um, is that. I think as educators and administrators, we need to be mindful of how, what are we trying to empower students to do. And I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with a blackout in terms of saying, hey, but if you've been having to do a blackout for 25 years, you probably need to really think critically about should we actually talk about letting black people go to this school? And not by letting, I mean like as a parent, right? I wouldn't want to send my kids to that school. If I worked for that school in the diversity department, I would. That strategy is not something you should be doing for 25 years, right? That means they don't have the, they're not.
0: To be clear, it's the the student-led thing is the thing that they've had a tradition for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But still, I mean, the fact that the students still feel the need to do that, Mm -hmm. that speaks volumes to the ways yeah. in which they are not going to be included in that space mm. right and and so so that's the first thing i thought it, about I was was like, different angle yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like yeah. nah bro you can't you know every there's some places white people don't want me to go i ain't trying to go there <laughs> you know what i'm saying i'm being honest <laughs> with you like white people be like oh you want to go there like oh come like no nah, i'm good you know because i'm gonna be like one or two or three i don't want to i'm good i don't need i don't need to be in your you know keep your space You know what I'm saying? Like, that's fine. I'm more about empowering and creating spaces for everybody to feel welcome and feel heard and valued. And if you're not really trying to transform that space to invite people to be them genuine, authentic selves, then I don't want to go to that space. Right? So anyway, that's all I wanted to say, because I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) Like, You know, as an administrator, I'm like, I can't believe a school can do this. So I didn't hear anything about this. I will definitely look this up, because this is a very interesting example.
0: One thing that I hear sometimes from my friends who are further left is an idea that People who are members of minority groups, by definition, cannot be racist. Now, I'm not making the reverse racism sort of conservative talk radio argument or anything like that. Um, But that seems to be a problem. It seems like if racism can only exist from the powerful to the less powerful, then simply it would switch if one group got more power. I mean, except for the 30 seconds of true equilibrium then whatever happened, it would just be there. Then there would
2: be a new kind of racism. And so that seems like the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty prominent view, I think, for large sections of the population. And there's a couple of different ways of looking at it, which is what you mentioned is the power dynamic that you can't be racist without the power. So you can be Prejudiced, but not racist is is one way that people look at it, because I think mostly white people hear that as people of color can't be racist. So they don't ever say anything offensive or something. Everything they say is not offensive or you're blaming me or something. Um, But
0: you can be racially on that view. You can't be racist, but you can be prejudiced. And yeah, you could be yeah. so racially
2: is, prejudiced. Well, yeah. And so that's one perspective. I think this is that's where... A, there's w- a,
0: there seems like a PR pro- problem there. If you're if you're trying to get millions of people to understand the difference between the word racist yeah. and that phrase racially prejudiced.
2: Well, so... And I wasn't, wasn't saying that's necessarily how we approach it. Yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to... <laughs> right. No, I know. We bring in um, the white racial frame, I think, is where this is helpful okay. to start categorizing and shifting conceptions of how to look at this. First, I think...
1: We need to have a clear definition of racism. So when someone says something's racist or isn't racist, my instinctual reaction is say, well, well, define racism. Because often what we find is people have a very conceptually deflated understanding of race, racism, right? They think it's just like um, hate speech. Or they go the other way and say, well, I don't even see race, right? The colorblind approach, right? Um, So what we talk about... Um, Using critical race theory is the way uh, we talk about racialization and how we're racialized, right? And how race is a conceptual vehicle that was used to marginalize certain people and how we've come to racialize people and not everybody that's in the group white now have always been white. Oh, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah right? yeah, right? And totally. so, and, and you know, immigrants, you know, there's a history of it, Italians, right, right, right?
0: Jews, yep. Polish, yep. Catholic, Irish. Exactly. exactly, They weren't white. Oh, they were they not are. white, and yeah. now they are. Yep,
1: so, and totally. so, so we use this narrative so white people can see how whiteness has evolved over time with regards to power dynamics, right, and things of that nature. And so what we do as we talk about what's called like a racial project. Um, and racial projects are uh, the organization and distribution of goods along racial lines, yeah. right? So the organization and distribution of goods. And so a, a racial project is racist if that organization and distribution of goods actually harms people along racial lines, right? Yeah. And so so we talk about racism at impact, not intent. Right. So now that's not to say you can't intentionally be racist. You totally can. Right. But it's beyond intent actually looks at impact. So a policy or a um, action can be racist if it disproportionately harms people of color. Right. Isn't it
0: isn't it true that at an individual level you need intent for racism, but at a structural level you do not need any intent? No. You just need impact? No. So someone can individually be racist without any intention to be racist so th- at all. And so
1: this is what I mean. And I'm glad, that, thank you for seeing, like you're doing a perfect job asking these questions. Yep. This is why you host this podcast, right? So it's not so much about being racist, I think as much as it's doing things that actually reinscribe racism, right? So what okay. we argue is that racism is normative. Racism, and this is in the white racial frame, racism is in the foundation of our country, right? Our country was founded on like enslaved yeah. black labor and women right. not having rights, right? <laughs> and so, and so
2: we need to make this is not at the level of theory. This is history. Yeah, like, right, this right. is no. how yeah, it yeah. works. This is For not sure. just some idea. Yeah, right? yeah like this <laughs> is- No,
0: no. And that one thing I've heard helpful here is like it might have been the case that our society was based on ear size. Like there are some tribes where people yes. have giant lobes when they and they increasingly put bigger and bigger like and then in for those societies you look around and you look at the size of someone's earlobes and it tells you something about them we don't have that in america earlobes have no you know there's no correlation between wealth and earlobes we have race that's the way it was done here right because it started with slavery yep right yeah and so and so So in, in a sense it's it's arbitrary but it is the one that was chosen for us here and we have now inherited that. Yeah. As Americans. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yep. So the first step, it seems to me, not a professional like you guys, but from a layman's perspective, step one is getting someone to understand the difference between personally racist actions and decisions and right. systemically racist, I got that. whatever, systems and, and yeah. that. So that's really helpful. But then if you're going to tell me, but since you're white or, or since you're black, you can, you could be Prejudiced, You could say all white people are blank and that could never be called racist strikes people as a weird right. problem so of terminology.
2: Right. And that's a sticking that's point that I really, it's honestly, that's a non-starter for me. I don't okay. that that because that's an issue for white people that want to litigiously figure out what's racist and not racist. And so if I do enough things that aren't racist, then I'm not racist when this does not reflect how we understand race. So, What we want to do is draw those links from structural racism to individual action. So how this plays out, I know from the research that I read that African-American women in the context of largely white, mostly white men, but white people will be perceived as aggressive, combative, uh, and angry when they're not, when they're just being people. Um, Right. And so that's a structural function, right? That's how race, this is a structural dynamic that creates that perception of African-American women in this way. Okay. At the individual level, that structures me, right? So I will perceive African-American women that way because I live within the structure of the United States, the racial structure of the United States. So without education, without reflecting on that, without thinking about it, bringing awareness to it, I will perceive African-American women as combative, aggressive, and angry.
0: You might think that this doesn't help. Here's something that helps me when I think about this. Replacing I will with I am statistically much more likely to because of my race. But you but know for what else? Instance, but for instance, I might have been raised yeah. in a mixed Social group or mixed race church setting or perhaps my brother, you know, maybe made a bunch of black friends who hung out. And I don't perceive black women as angry when they're not because I've as it happens, I have had a bunch of experience with black women. It would still be the case that I'm statistically likely to It just be in this case. I don't. So I would then that to me solves so many of these. Sort of unnecessary walls that go up when we make them when we make it absolutes. That's I guess when I'm kind of I would
2: I would, I would state against. it right. I, and I hear that, and I would state it more strongly. Absent education about race, white, or experience with black women, right, or experience, right, which is a different okay. kind of education. Okay. Yeah, okay,
0: I, I'll take that. Yeah,
2: white people will respond that way to African American women because mm. that's the way our racial structure works. Right? And, and this is sure. why, but this is why the white racial frame is important, right? So one more yeah. thing. All right. The compassion practice is helpful for undoing that. Exactly. I, well, yeah, And great. so that's why we bring it in, because I can create that awareness. So I read, I have the intellectual knowledge that this is what how white people tend to respond to African-American women. I'm a white person, right? Okay, so that's an invitation for me to say let me try and start noticing how I'm responding to African-American women when I talk to them or when I hear them yeah. or that sort of thing. Yeah. And then I can start tending to myself. And it becomes a way to, to change that reaction, to change my default responses. So rather than saying, oh, this woman is being... Why is she so angry? You
1: say... Why, why do I think she's being angry? Why do I think she's being exactly, angry? Exactly, right? That. He, you that. You do that U-turn. Yeah. And so that allows you to do that kind of an interrogation piece. Um, there is a part of our American culture in talking about race is that we have this built-up society where we talk about race with white people and, and, and racism in the passive tense, Right. We are structured to not say anything bad about white people. Um, we'll say things like, oh, black people, if, if you send out, you know, a hundred resumes that equal qualifications were white and it's people of color, they're more likely to call back white people, right? And we'll, and we'll say something like that rather than saying white people tend to be racist when they're evaluating resumes with black-sounding names, right? Because that's, that's the act. And the funny thing is, if they teach you to write in school, they teach you to write in active tense. When we talk about racism, we're like, eh, eh this is it's just... not anybody's fault. Exactly. No it's not anybody's doing fault. It, it. just right? happens, right? And so that that's what I mean. And this is how we frame things in ways that um allow us to obscure and not concretely address um the ways in which um the logic and ideology of whiteness is pervasive right and i think we have to wrestle with that reality and and the thing is it's and, and what the, where the compassion practice helps is so often when someone says something like, like white like white people do this individual white people get mad and rather than getting the, what they the u-turn is an opportunity to say okay why am i upset are they talking about me and then you say, Oh, I'm I don't fit in that category. They're not talking about me. They're talking about other white people. Okay. Then white people may, they may do that, right? Instead yeah, of being I and, mean and, and, that's
0: that's true. You, like it's it's good to do the U turn and but like it would be best if also everyone only spoke accurately. I guess is what I'm you know what I'm saying? Like if I said to you, if I said to you, for instance, uh women are more concerned with social graces. You'd be like, Hold on. Not all women are more, there are guys who are considered, we would, we would, we would throw up a flag and we would say, hold on, you could maybe say women are statistically more likely to be uh, incursive with social graces. My wife, for instance, is better at social graces than I am, but that's not set in stone. It is a statistical likelihood. It's a bell curve distribution. And yeah, she, she fits in the middle of the bell curve and so do I. And so she's more, she's better at social graces. Why can't we just use the same exact language about white people and people of color.
1: I, th- I think we can. I think you can use that language. And I think when I talk about, I tend, I tend to say things like, generally speaking, most of the yeah. time. Yeah. But I guess what I push back against is the kind of litigation piece you were talking about, Seth, right? How I, I, t- I push back at it being used as a tool for white people, broadly understood, to not deal with their own internalized racism. Because that's often what's yeah. being used. And the reason I say that is because yeah. we live in a racist society. Look at sure. the – you know what I'm saying? So if, if, if it wasn't true, we wouldn't have the outcomes that we have right now, right? Well,
0: yeah. Uh, well, no, i I think that the only thing that needs to be true for the outcomes is the more accurate – Statistical likelihood language. That is sufficient to explain the racist outcomes. And of course, maybe just in case anybody doesn't know, we're on the same page in terms of the racist outcomes. I have a huge, <laughs> huge, uh, totally accept the, the racial uh, discrepancies in America. You know, people, listeners know that because there have been other episodes about it. But I, I guess I, as someone who does messaging, you know, and, and doing the podcasting, I am just like, I would like to turn away as few people unnecessarily as possible. And so if there's a way that I could say something that is more accurate and that would... that still gets at all of the... explains the system correctly, like I want that.
2: So the underlying issue that we're wrestling with in what you're stating is how often those loopholes are used by white people to absolve themselves of responsibility sure. for dealing with racism. I so mean, it's yeah. statistically I likely guess, yeah. that most white people do this. Well, I'm not part of that statistic. That doesn't, that doesn't mean me. Because we like to think of, <clears throat> we like to think racism is out there and by, yep. and nobody, yep. so this is a podcast, oh, sure. right? So yeah.
1: I'm, I'm gesturing away from me yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. rather than racism is in here. And yeah. again, I'm gesturing towards myself. And I'm, I say this as an African American man, recognizing I also inhibit these, Uh, ideologies, right, Uh, uh, this system, right, and those ideologies have become normative, and I have had and, con- and and will always have in America racist thoughts and think racist things that I'm continually unpacking because I, I inhibit this space, right? And so that's the danger that we are always trying to... So it's okay to use that language, but this is why it's important to do it in concert with the U-turn. And I also just want to recognize, as, as Seth said, how people tend to use that language um, and how it can be used to dismiss yeah. actually engaging their own stuff. It can be and another so that's the way problem. of saying all lives matter or something yeah. like that. Right. Instead, of instead of just saying, okay, you know, why do I feel the need to do that? You know, but here's
0: a thought experiment. Let's say you have, let's say we take the people that I was talking about the NFL players with what, like, how will they possibly come to like, want to listen to a conversation like this? Mm. If someone tells that if they, when they hear the soundbite on their conservative talk radio station, this prominent race theorist says black people can, by definition, not be racist. Y- they've just bought themselves nine more months of, of totally ignoring it. Now, they might have ignored it anyway. But like, what if they were close? You know, like, that's kind of my thinking. It's just like, I, uh, I'm, I'm a political moderate I believe in like we, we actually have to speak to sort of like the 40% middle of the country on, on most issues if we want to get stuff done and passed. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. And so, yeah, I, I it's totally true that people you people will say things similar to what I'm saying in bad faith. But I'm like, if there's a good faith version of it and it could be more accurate than like. Can we use that so that we're not needlessly turning people away? So this
2: gets out to the nuance that we try and incorporate, which is meeting people where they are.
0: Well, and that's what I'm saying. Um, That's actually where all these conversations, this whole more difficult second part of the conversation comes from is because it seems to me like the work you guys are doing is so brilliantly centered in the particular and in compassion and empathy and all that stuff. And then... If I just go like randomly to a critical race theory, Wikipedia page or something, yeah. I'm going to find a bunch of stuff that well, it, it so seems sort of in, right. in dissonance so with that.
2: The, the issue there is can be just simply characterized as the difference between medical language for describing something and the layman's medical description that I need because I'm working on a disorder that I have versus the research that's going on about the disorder, which I'm not qualified to know because I don't have the skills to do understand it. And that's, part of the issue here is so like if you're doing the theoretical research there's a theoretical language that goes with it that needs probably some translation from audience to audience
3: yeah
2: and the, the other thing i want to say too to your point in terms of the, with the people
1: that are take, that are talking about the um, kneeling where they you know the one thing i love about our our process is that it's it's volunteer right mm-hmm. It's so like you got to kind of want to do it in the first place. You got to be at least curious about it, you know, and you may be open. You can't force anybody to do this. Right. And, and, and and so if someone is already coming there, they already have something is happening in their thinking. Where they're already like, mm, I need to, I feel like I want to work on this in some ways. Um, you can't force it on people. So no, So it, it, until they're ready, they're not They're not going to get it. No, you know? totally. I just, I have but friends. I, I thought your point, I thought, your point yeah. was well taken though. I not want to say that.
0: I have friends who were ready and then they read Waking Up White and they read Just Mercy and mm-hmm. they read, uh, and they, they watched the 13th and they read New Jim Crow and then they get on Facebook and they're like, my black friends can never, you know, they, whatever. Then they just, then they sloganeer in public not one-on-one, and then a bunch of people who might have been open because of the slogans they chose to use are now not open for some amount of time until something else will come along and make them open.
2: Like, it'd be cool if there were a a reflective process to help them learn about some other (laughs) stuff, right? How how it takes place within them. Yes, exactly. That'd be great. And so, (laughs) I
1: I think, and again, this is a part of what makes our process unique. And, And to be fair, this is also what makes some people along the critical race theorists group, not like our process right because they perceive it as very touchy-feely emotional you know and what we now, argue, I'm, now I'm all in yeah
0: <laughs> anytime you can show me that the left and the right both satisfied, like exactly. i'm in you're yeah. probably on the right track that's
1: honestly i think kind of <laughs> yeah. what, what we yeah. realized we're like okay yeah. both groups are like eh, what about this and so we realized oh and we're very methodist and, and methodist is all about this kind of middle way yeah middle so, way man yeah so i think oh, it yeah. totally fits our personalities yeah um and so we realized okay like we want to talk about structural racism but we also realize that as people we inhibit these structures and so we have to tend to the stuff that we comes inhabit. up we yeah we, we inhabit those structures I'm mm-hmm. sorry and, and and so um we have to give people the tools they need to deal with their interior interior activities about race because we haven't been taught that we just haven't been taught it and once you give people the tools then now it's up to them to make those next steps and those kinds of next moves right we're not teaching them um you know, how to, we're giving them the tools so that when they decide that they want to act or how they want to act in the world, they have the capacity to do so in ways that affirm their identity, they bring compassion to themselves, and also compassion to others so they can listen to other people in compassionate ways, um, to go out and do, uh, beautiful work in the world. Um, and, 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 and in this sense, I think that we try to cultivate a space where, because we teach structural racism, where students realize that, again, racism is normative, it's embedded in the culture, and so they realize that because of this, they, we have to be anti-racist, right? We can't just not be prejudiced. Right. Because that prejudice level is the individual. We have to we have to recognize that racism is normative. And we we honestly do need to be on the lookout for racism, not like to say, oh, that's, you know, to point out and to do the Twitter stuff, but to see how it's embedded in our institution. Now, let me give you a quick example, because I know I've been talking too long. Friend of mine, teaches at a community college in Southern California. And um, he uh, got asked to be a part of the uh, faculty that was in the honors program. Now, when he got involved in this, and this is a white dude, but grew up in a kind of low-income family. um, And so he grew up in a working class, low-income family. So he's very much aware of a lot of this stuff. He and I are friends, and we talk a lot about race. Um, He realized when he got involved in this that all the honors students were white students, even though the majority of students that went to this school were not white. And so then he started looking more into it, and all the classes they offer for honors classes were only during like, you know, like 10 to like 3. And most of the students of color work and they come there in the evening or early in the morning. Yeah. And so he argued that we need to really shift this to allow other students to join. And then in doing so, guess what happened? More students of color run in the honors Fantastic. program. And that so- is
0: exactly the kind of Stuff we need to be trying to figure out how to
3: shift, yeah, and yeah. so that's what that's I mean. Like, fantastic. so he
1: named it, and he was like, yeah. "You know, this is actually kind of racist, yes. you know."
2: And, and so cause here, like, there was yeah. probably no intent to be racist oh, on the part of the community just, college. Somebody right? Somebody just set it up that but way, but it still and, is, yeah, right? Totally,
1: and it may be, not have been that Structural, way like a long time it ago. Structurally,
2: is it's not.
0: Yeah. That's where, yeah, like.
2: Like the impact is racist, but your intent is not. There can be
0: racist
1: impacts. So yeah, I think, so that's kind of where we're trying to push students to get to that place where they have the capacity and skills to to be able to name something like that at their job. Like I literally just got an email from one of the students we taught in our class last year. Um like just a few minutes ago during this conversation where she took my Black Women's Theologies class and she was really interested in terms of creating because in her space she was one of very few women in her accounting office and there were no women of color. And she was like, this is a problem. We need to really address this if we're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, financing and marketing is what kind of thing she was in. And so she just sent me an email about trying to continue this program that she came with this idea with based upon the stuff we did in our class about, about reaching out to uh, women and women of color especially to get these internships to work at her particular job right yeah. and all this stuff came up by me exposing into this material right and now she's not awesome. yeah and, and she's not like you know someone you know working for NAACP right but she, yeah, has, she just she, works
0: at an accounting yeah, firm but yeah. she has
1: the skills and capacities to know how to talk to people in ways that they can hear yeah. right to totally. get to, to really address structural racism yeah right and so that's the work that we hope our Process can empower people to do right. That that's their compassionate action, right? That they go into the road, they can they can address these kinds of things.
0: And I love that the practicality of that. I think what I am getting so tired of is this friend reads one book. And now they're on Twitter calling people out for their racism. <laughs> Every time they do, they get a bunch of social capital from their leftist friends. Meanwhile, yeah. they live in the same neighborhood. They go to the same restaurants. They haven't done anything different. Mm-hmm. All they did was read a book, which they probably enjoyed. You know, it taught them yeah. some truth, yeah. but they enjoyed it. They they entertained themselves with a good book for a while. Now they call people out publicly and they get all this virtue signaling credit which by the way everybody virtue signals left and right all it's a human activity but they they didn't actually do anything yeah. you know and yeah. so it's like uh, it's such a cheap activism and i think that that's I think that that's just a, a moment in time thing. It's true with Trump. It's I mean, true with yeah. anything. Like, so that gets back to our yeah. process
2: too. The conclusion of our process is discerning compassionate action.
0: This is what. So this is why I was so drawn to talk to you guys in the first place. Is this? It it seems like you guys are getting past that stalemate. That just sort of media right. only stalemate where we're, no one is. We're n- nothing's happening on the ground. Yeah. Basically.
2: And so, yeah. And so, with the compassionate action is is when you go through the process that you know you were so brave to do earlier, um, that the end result is (laughs) (laughs) that the end result of that is some sort of new life is birthed within us, where we feel called to take some action. And so, discerning what kind of actions, because not everyone is called to be at the front lines of the protest or to be sure. like a Martin Luther King or something or, or Gandhi or something like right. that. Right. We're not all called to do that. Um, and so the important part of this process is what are the sustainable actions that we're called to do within our communities and in our lives? Some of us may be called to larger platforms and larger venues and some of us won't, but the important thing is that those actions are authentic and come out of the wisdom that we've gained and are sustainable. Last question for you guys. Uh, you're doing this
0: inter this deep personal work with people and you're focusing it on racial justice but it strikes me that that isn't the only uh issue that it could be trained on so in just in case someone is listening and is about to embark on some new stage of life or new field like uh have you guys considered or met anybody or like what are other sort of justice or or just sort of um public good type of scenarios. I mean, economics is, I mean, what, what else could, could this kind of way of this compassion work toward topic X? Like what else might it work for?
2: Uh, I know that Chris has used it in the context of environmental issues. Um, I yeah. have, what we're going to do this summer. Yeah. W- one of my colleagues uses it in the context of animals, um, okay. and, um, uh, animal shelters and, and fighting burnout there and whatnot. Um, And then this summer, we're um, doing this work with um, Disciples of Christ Christ, uh, with a, I think it's the pastor's retreat at their annual um, conference.
0: Thank you guys so much. This was a crazy afternoon (laughs) of talking and thinking, and I really appreciate you guys uh, getting into the weeds with me on this. Christopher and Seth were very clear with me that anybody interested in their work can get in touch with them. I've got Christopher's faculty page in the show notes with his email, his email address is on that page. Um, Again, the PULSE and FLAG acronyms are listed in the show notes. Uh, I've got a link to Frank Rogers' book, Practicing Compassion. If you're wanting to hear that inerrancy conversation, become a patron patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permissionpod.com click become a patron also you get the facebook group which is for patrons only where i get a lot of questions that i answer on the show also people help me ask questions of future guests and they help me decide what episode's coming next and what patron episode's coming next and it's just a constant uh, conversation i'm on there almost every day and it's really becoming a, a kind of a cool little family So if you want to become a patron, you can. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. And yeah, share these episodes. Let me know how that goes. I heard a really cool one today from someone who said that he and his sister listen and they talk about it and they didn't know that they were both going through deconstruction until they started talking about the show. Pretty incredible. That made me very happy. All right. I'll see you guys next week, I think, with an episode about uncertainty but don't hold me to it. Later. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us
3: forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.